Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. One of the most potent passages in the Bible about this subject of living as the children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation and generation, showing ourselves to be living epistles of Jesus Christ, living like Him. Others may wear WWJD bracelets. Let us do what Jesus would do. Not ask a question about it, let's just do it. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's been preached to you many times before. Let's just remind ourselves what it says. The first two verses are 11 and 12. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Remember the word behold. Behold means to look and to see. Solomon beheld the field of the slothful and received instruction. He looked, he saw, and we want our good works to be seen. And the the good works here are by these Jews scattered abroad throughout the Roman Empire that the Gentiles would see them, and though they accused them of being evildoers, they would glorify God because of their good works. We are strangers and pilgrims in this earth. We should abstain from fleshly lusts. The fleshly lusts are, we want to rebel against government. Who wants to pay taxes? A fleshly lust is, rebel against masters. Who wants to obey on the job? A fleshly lust is, we rebel against husbands. Who wants to obey your husband when he's wrong? First Peter chapter 3. We rebel against our wives because they disappoint us. First Peter 3, 7. All in context here. Abstain from fleshly lusts so that our conversation, which means our lifestyle, before the Gentiles will be one of good works that will shut their mouths from their evil accusations against us and cause them to glorify God in the day of visitation when He comes to them with the gospel. They have learned and, re- and benefited by our example. He immediately then goes into civil authority and employment in the rest of chapter 2. Verses 13 through 17 are civil government. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And remember our purpose is to live in such a way to glorify God through their mouths and hearts, to defend the truth, to shut the mouths of gainsayers. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, the second part of verse 15. That with well-doing, ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's what we want to do. There are foolish men that speak against this church. They're family members of some of you. We can put them to silence by the way we live. And the way we live is here dictated about civil government. Some of you have made changes in that area. Some toward our employers, our masters. Some toward our husbands. Some toward our wives. Chapters 2 and 3 gets us. And we can live in such a way as to shut the mouths of those ignorant men that want to falsely accuse us. We're free. We are the sons of God. Do you know what claim these nations have over us? None. In one sense. As free. But not using that liberty for a cloak of maliciousness against government. But as the servants of God. Since we're God's servants and He's told us to obey, we'll obey. But we want you to know, O King, 
We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Whether our God will deliver us or not from your fiery furnace, we do not know. But we will not bow down to your golden image. That is the, the interpretation of that verse. That's comparing Scripture with Scripture. We're free. And whenever their laws cross our God's laws, we don't obey their laws. We obey God's laws. Let's go to employment. You know the verses. They're wonderful verses. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Notice these words. Be subject. Do you mean I should really be in subjection to my boss? Yes. How much? With all fear. That's what the Bible says. These are the words of God, not mine. I'm not some Neanderthal. The Lord's the Neanderthal. And if you don't like it, complain to Him. But I would suggest you humble yourself before His Word and tremble and realize this is God's wisdom. It's right and it's holy. And it's how we want to live with all fear toward those that are over us. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. We do it out of conscience toward God. There's a child of God wanting to please his father, so he puts up with whatever is done to him in the workplace. This is a wonderful passage. You will have occasion to refer to it again. Before I forget, let me jump tracks entirely, completely, from 1 Peter 2. I'm sorry, but I don't want to forget. At break time, several younger women came to me and asked for some clarification. And so I want to clarify three things I want to say. Number one, aged women, I offered to you from God through his word to be a tree of life. Can you think of a higher calling for your, for your life than to be a tree of life to others? And that your lips could feed many, that they could come to you as a tree and pluck the fruit of the wisdom and knowledge of your experience in how to be a better wife, a better mother, and so forth. What an opportunity. Rather than feel beaten down by it, be motivated and excited by it. Fulfill your purpose in this world. God puts you in a church to serve others. They're your little sisters. They're your daughters. Be a tree of life to them. What is an aged woman? If you're a 40-year-old woman, and you're with a 30-year-old woman... You've been married 15 years and she's been married five. You are the aged woman in that little encounter. Don't say we need to wait around for a 90-year-old woman to teach us both. You've got 15 years of experience. Share your experience with her. If you're a 31-year-old woman and you happen to be with a 21-year-old wife and you've got 13 years of marriage experience and they've got 13 months, do something. That wasn't meant for anyone in particular. So, uh, Aged women, you know, I'm extending it to a, a lot of women in here. That when you're with another woman, open this thing. This thing is for more than kissing your husband. It's for speaking. It's for words to come out of it. And those words, the have you read Proverbs with me as we've studied through it the last several years? A word fitly spoken is like, Apples of gold in pictures of silver. It is beautiful. You want to kiss a person on the lips that say a good word. And you can say good words to the women in this church and help them. The aged are the context of whatever woman you encounter. 
Because a woman that's been married 13 years times 365 days knows a little bit about gravy and the sheets. So she can help a woman that's only been married a year. The third thing I want to say is that one of the young women that came to me said, what is a shame is that when we're out in the world, like at my place of employment, those women have more advice for my marriage and what I should be doing as a woman than the aged women in this church. That hurt. Let that not be true any further. Let the aged women in this church, in whatever context you're in, go after the young women and help them. Brethren, we're free because we are the sons of God. We're strangers and pilgrims here, but we submit to our government because 1 Peter 2 tells us to, and we submit to our masters, even if they're forward, even if they're obnoxious, difficult, we submit to them for the Lord's sake to shut the mouths of our adversaries and to have God glorified by them seeing our Christian example. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. I mentioned this in the first sermon this morning. The first two verses. Likewise. See, likewise connects you back to the servants under their masters and to the citizens under their government all the way back to verses 11 and 12 about having a conversation, a lifestyle, honest among the Gentiles so that they'll glorify God. Wives can convert husbands by the way they live without the Word of God. A wife does not need to leave a website document from our website under her husband's pillow. She needs to be in subjection with all fear toward him and all chasteness. Look at the first two verses of chapter 3 and get the power of your example. You are responsible for your example. And this example is not out in the world. This is the one we have at home. If you can influence an ungodly, unconverted husband, how much can you influence a converted husband? Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, unconverted and unbelieving husband, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, by her lifestyle, the way she treats her husband, while they behold... I don't believe there's one single word in the King James Bible wasted, do you? The word behold, while they behold, while they behold, what does that mean? While they see and look upon your life, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, you are pure, loyal, only theirs, always theirs, fully theirs, with fear of God and fear of them, because you're in totally subjection to your husband. The Bible says it doesn't guarantee it always going to happen, but it can happen. A husband can be won by the life of the wife that the husband looks at without her ever using the Word of God. That is power. The power of influence by your example, your lifestyle. Thank you, Lord, for such powerful examples to us. Note the use of behold. Let your light so shine before men that they may behold your good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. Are you getting this thrust that's throughout the Bible? He's left us in this world for for reasons. Why didn't He just save us and take us to heaven? Because He wants to leave us here in this world to show this world that you had among you the sons of God. You mistreated... Do you know what the Bible says twice? 
in, in Philippians chapter 1, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says this, that when they touch a child of God, it is an evident token of their damnation. When they persecute the children of God, it is an evident token of their damnation. He left us here, and they heap to themselves wrath by ever picking on us verbally or any other way. And do you know what it says about us? It's an evident token of our salvation, because they're picking on us. Staying in 1 Peter chapter 3, come down to verse 15. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's how this verse starts off. You know the interior words of this verse better than you know the first part. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. That whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. See, the evildoers was already mentioned back there in 2.12, where it says they speak against you as evildoers, but you want to cause them to glorify God in the day of visitation by your life. Here they use evildoers again, speaking against you, but we want to shame them. We want to shame them by being very careful in every part of our lives to be everything that a Christian should be. To shame them for ever thinking or saying something negative about us or our religion. This is our goal. This can be done. This can be done. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if an unbelieving spouse wants to stay with a believing husband, stay married. Because how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt win that wife? And what is one of the ways of winning that we're learning right here in this context? By your example in your life. Your lifestyle. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. I don't want that verse to be confusing to you. Make God holy on the inside first. If you make God holy and lift Him up, do you know how you're going to live? You're going to live a holy life in agreement with everything I've preached so far and everything that should be preached on this subject. That means, that's what it means when it says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Make Him holy and set Him up that His standard of righteousness is the way you live. Then, if you do that from the inside out, people are going to ask you a reason of the hope that is within you. But can I talk about hope for a minute? Some of you have faces like this. There's no hope inside you. Hope does something to a person. Hope changes a person. When you're full of hope, everything is good. Amen. Rip away my job, rip away my health, because what real, what's the real hope? It's the blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's every man that hath this hope in him. I think that was from 1 John 3, 3 that I started with this morning. Every man that hath this hope in him, what is that hope? Bre- beloved, now are we the sons of God, but it, not, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Every man that hath this hope in him, that hope changes you. Some of you, your faces look like hell. You're so unhappy. You're so miserable. You whining, complaining, selfish babies. The only reason you're unhappy is because you're selfish. It has nothing to do with anyone else except that they are not giving you everything you want in your selfish lusts for your personal pleasure rather than serving God and serving others. Where is your hope? The reason you haven't been asked a reason of the hope that is within you is because you ain't got any. 
If you had hope, they'll ask. They want to know what makes you different. Why doesn't this bother you? Why are you happy all the time? I'm, yes, I am mad. And be ready always. Be ready always. Do you know what that requires? Some knowledge. You better know the Word of God. Because it doesn't say to give them an opinion when they ask. It says to give them a reason of the hope that is within you. And we've got good, sound reasons. My God has adopted me to be His Son. I'm a child of the King. My sins have been washed away. I am clothed in His righteousness. I have heaven waiting. I have an eternal inheritance reserved in heaven for me that fadeth not away and is not defiled by anything in this world. He speaks to me every day. I have a written manual on how to live. I'm the most blessed person that ever lived. And you give it to Him from the Word of God. But it starts with sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. May I quote another verse that I've used so many times, I fear that you'll, you'll let it flip out without hearing it. Go out of your ears. We are a child of the King. Therefore, we ought to act and live like princes. Princes act very different than the commoners. The gulf between them is hardly describable. The Bible knows that. That's why in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we learned about the fact that when your child, when your king is a son of nobles, you can rejoice because you've got a princely man. But when your, when your king is a commoner, that nation is in, is in trouble and in judgment because commoners don't know how to act. There is a princely, noble spirit. And I want to tell you something. Most of the children of God are called by the grace of God not being noble. Not being wise, worldly wise. Not being rich. But, this book is written by a king. And this book... Who wrote, who wrote Proverbs? What kind of a man was he? Was he a commoner? A king. And he wrote this for his son to be a great king. He wrote this to teach us how to be princely. Let me go back and talk about how we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. He that loveth pureness of heart. Finish it, Jonathan Nappy. That's being princely. It starts here. He that loveth pureness of heart. For the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. He's winning the king... Not by gifts. He's winning the king, not by dying in battle. He's winning the king by having the lips of a Christian. Princely lips. Lord, I want that. Do you want that? I want to be a prince in the earth because I'm the son of a king. And every time I act like a commoner, these pagans that are around me out here, I, def- I give occasion for them to reproach my father the king. He's a great king. And I want to be a prince. Does this motivate anyone in here? It motivates me. I want to be a prince. I want to act like a prince. Generous. Gracious. Merciful. Loving. Serving. Noble. Kind. All the things the Bible teaches us to be. This is a kingly book. God calls us in poverty... But that doesn't mean we have to stay there. There is no virtue in poverty. God calls us without nobility. But there's no virtue in not being noble. There's virtue in being noble. And the Bible teaches us how to be noble. A verse like I just gave you. Isn't 
Let me get back to my text or I'll be off on... I love that verse. Proverbs 22, 11. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Do you know what that means? That you set up God on His holy throne in your heart. Did you like Psalm 20 today where it says, He hears from His holy heaven? That's, that's an uncommon expression in the Bible. Holy heaven. But it's holy. Because He's holy. And it's the holy angels that are around Him. And there is nothing that defiles there. He hears from His holy heaven. So we sanctify the Lord. To sanctify something means to make it holy. We make God holy in our hearts. God is right, and I want to live every way that He says to in His holy Bible. No wonder it's called the Holy Scriptures. Because a holy God wrote these holy words to tell us how to live holy. So we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. We make Him holy. We lift Him up. We do whatever He says. If He tells us, child, you're free, but go ahead and submit to this government until they cross My word. And you do it. You sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And they're going to ask why, why are you like that? What's this hope you have? What drives you? What motivates you? Why do you live the way you do? And you give them a reason. And a reason from the Word of God. And a reason based on your Father in Heaven. Because I'm a child of the King. And the King's written me the Bible and I love Him and I want to obey Him and please Him in my life. And He's told me this is how I should treat my Master. This is how I should treat my government. This is how I should treat my husband. This is how I should treat my wife, my children. The word princess doesn't communicate the same concept to your minds as the word prince, so I don't like using it. You know, the word princess conveys some stupid Cinderella idea of some girl that doesn't have a mind at all except a pretty dress and glass slippers. And that isn't what I want to convey, so I'm not going to say that. But for you ladies, you can be wonderful ladies in this world that crush other people. Listen, men talk about women all the time. And there's an opinion made about every woman that is met, whether she is a biddy or whether she is a charming, loving woman. Instantly. High maintenance or low maintenance? Go ahead and line them up together. High maintenance is a biddy. Low maintenance is a wonderful woman who knows her role. God did not make a woman for her to be maintained by her husband. God made a woman to maintain her husband. And that's why God made them. And everywhere you go, and at all times, you are creating an, an, a, a picture. It's a picture, because it's something that is seen. It's your lifestyle. It's your face. It's your eyes. It's your smile. The Bible tells me in Proverbs chapter 15 that a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. Amen. If you have a merry heart, if you have sanctified the Lord God in your heart, your heart is merry, and it shows up on your face. If it's not in your face, it's not in your heart. If it's in your heart, it's going to be on your face. Don't tell us what a good heart you have. Your heart is black if your face is dull. Amen. What is wrong? Well, I just don't smile. Why? I'm telling you the Word of God. The man that has a merry heart, what else does it say about him? He lives a continual feast. feast. Amen. But the days of the afflicted are... How many days of the afflicted? I want to get that... Oh. I love a church that knows the Bible. All the days of the afflicted are evil. Amen. Have you ever, have, do we have any people like that in here? All the days of the afflicted are evil. Every day there's something bad going on. Every day there's something to worry about. But he that has a merry heart has a continual feast. Amen. Feast day after day after day. Then they want to ask, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always 
Because you know why that always is in there? You do not know when God is going to bring someone across your path that is going to ask you. You never know. So be ready always. That means you better have the knowledge already stored up so that when they ask, why are you so hopeful, you can give them a reason for it. And you do it with meekness and fear, not with arrogance and condescension. But how do you get, where does that hope come from? It comes from verse 16, having a good conscience. That whereas they want to accuse you as an evildoer, they can't do it because you're shaming them because they're falsely accusing your good lifestyle in Christ. The word conversation means lifestyle when it's used like this. We use the word conversation now because we've corrupted the word to mean two people talking to each other. But in the Bible, the word conversation means lifestyle. And so our lifestyle should be to protect the gospel, shut their mouths, and cause them to ask, why are you different? And everything you do, whether it's your trunk, your car, your credit score, we have so many things that could be covered under this subject. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. On this wonderful subject that the Bible... If our Father in heaven is glorified by our lives, and if I am His servant, this is what I should preach to you. I want us to be princes in the earth for our Father the King. Every wife, when you're home fixing a meal for your husband, doing the laundry, going to bed with him, fixing his lunch, whatever whatever it involves, whatever, you are getting to be the wife of a child of the King. You're the wife of a prince. And God looks at it that way. Read. Listen. He's a son of God. How are you treating him? Husband, the woman that you're married to, she's a daughter of a king. You were privileged to marry the daughter of a king. How are you treating her? Like the daughter of a king? The king just might ask once in a while how you're treating his daughter. And he's going to ask in the day of judgment. So how are we treating the daughter of a king? I'm trying to get the point across. Philippians 1.27 Only You mean we can focus on one thing? I like the word only. I'm simple. I don't like getting confused with too many details. I like Philippians 1.27 Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Your conversation is your lifestyle. Only Make sure, you Philippians, that you focus on this very important thing, that your lifestyle is becoming to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that whether I come and see you, whether I make it in my travels back to Philippi of Macedonia, or else be absent, I'm elsewhere serving other churches and other places, I may hear, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is a Christian church. That is a church that is focusing on doing what is right before God, whether Paul is there or not, so that he can hear. See, the other way that you can learn about a person is what you hear about them, their reputation. You see the picture of their life, and then you hear about their reputation. Paul says, when I hear about the church at Philippi, I want to hear that you are standing fast. You're not moving around to different doctrines. You're standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. A united church at peace. That's what I want to hear. Because that is conduct that is becoming to the gospel of Christ. We are peacemakers. 
We want to make peace at all times with everyone. We want to make peace with our enemies. We want to make peace with the world as far as we can possibly go without compromising righteousness. Because we serve the God of peace. He's called the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of Peace. And we want to have our lives full of peace. Look at 1 Timothy 5.8. Let me give you an example. Let me give you a few examples. If you'll allow me to hurry, and I think you can tell that I'm... we got to hurry. Let me give you some examples of the character of what we're talking about. There's the concept. The concept is your life says more than your words. There's the commandment of what God has said. We just looked at one of the commandments, Philippians 1.27. We looked at 1 Peter 2. We looked at Philippians 2. Those are commandments. This is what God our Father wants us to do. Now let's look at the character that we ought to have. And let me just run through some points very quickly. Let me show you how practical the Bible is. 1 Timothy 5.8, where it's talking about widows and the care of widows by the church. But if any provide not for his own, his own widows and his own family, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Infidels know that you are to take care of your ancestors your relatives, your parents, and your grandparents. Infidels know that, that don't know anything about the God of heaven. If you do not take care of your family and your aged parents that can no longer provide for themselves, then you have denied the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are no longer acting like a Christian. And you are worse than an infidel because even the infidels know to take care of their parents. You're worse than one. Lord, save us. Our Father in Heaven, forgive us for ever being the children of God and not taking care of our parents. Every one of you hear me. If you've got an aunt or an uncle that's in trouble and needs help, you owe them some help. When it says, especially they have his own house, that means your immediate family. Or you've denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel. I've preached it before. I'll answer any questions about it, but we have ground to cover. But I want, I use this text to show you that there is a standard of righteousness that even infidels know about, that if a Christian ever conducts himself in such a way as not to keep that, they know without the Bible that you are not a Christian. You are not even natural. You are, you are an ostrich. You are wicked for not taking care of your own family. The morality of Conscience that God gives nations shows them what is right in a number of areas, like sodomy in Romans chapter 1. Men know that. A Christian can never be a sodomite. It's contrary to the Word of God, first of all, most of all. It's also contrary to nature, and most men know that. We are to be perfect. Do you know the Bible tells you that? Be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, And that is in a five-verse section about loving your enemies because He sends His sunshine and His rain on His enemies, on the evil and the good. And so we're to love our enemies. I'm just going to race through a number of these. Balance. We're talking about the character of a Christian. They're balanced. They're not extreme. The Amish are extreme. The Amish are ridiculous. The Amish are stupid. And the Amish bring reproach upon the name of Christianity. They make fun of people who are so stupid they will not drive an automobile. And if you don't like the word stupid, I'm sorry a little bit. But I'm not very sorry. 
Because that is a terrible shame when there are people that name the name of Christ but will not drive an automobile. I don't care what their consciences are in the matter. The Bible doesn't say any such thing. But when they're riding around in their little buggies and holding up traffic in western Pennsylvania and Ohio and some other states that have them, it's ridiculous. That's a reproach. Well, we're just just trying to avoid the world. Who told you to avoid the world that way? Your efforts to avoid the world disgrace Christianity to the world. How does that bring honor and glory to your Father which is in heaven? I want to remind you of something. The character of a child of God is balanced. Being more conservative than the Bible is not righteous. It is Phariseeism. And God hates it. Jesus had to deal with Pharisees more than any other enemy to the truth. If you try to be more conservative than the Bible, you are a Pharisee. You're a nun. You're a monk. You're Amish. And it it hurts the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we get out of the truth into either ditch, we bring reproach upon our God. If we go into the ditch of lasciviousness, we reproach our God. If we go into the ditch of being Amish or like a nun, we reproach our God. A godly mother steers between being an overbearing neat freak and a doting lover of her man. A woman can love her husband so much she neglects her children. A mother could love her children so much she neglects her man. We're balanced as Christians. So we always want to be thinking, what is God's balance for my life? Virtuous women avoid the clothing extremes of the Amish and of whores. And there is a pretty wide road in the middle between those two where a woman should look good for the glory of God and for the honor of her husband. Let me tell you something about the virtuous woman, and I've already said it, but I'm trying to make a point and I want to get it across. She didn't wear a gunny sack, and she didn't wear a lampshade. She was beautiful. She wore silk and purple. It's Proverbs chapter 31, verse 22. And she conducted herself in such a way it brought honor and glory to her husband. Walking around in a gunny sack never brought honor and glory to any man. Abigail was a, a beautiful of a beautiful countenance and beautiful to look upon. What in the world are those words in the Bible for if you couldn't look upon the beauty of the women that are described as beautiful to look upon in the Bible? That didn't mean you were looking upon their nakedness, and it didn't mean you you were looking upon them in their underwear, or a bikini, or some alluring, sexually oriented outfit that would be used by a whore to attract a man for sex only. But they were still beautiful. Balance. Brethren. Ecclesiastes taught us that you can be over much righteous. And it taught us we can be over much wise. We don't want to be that. We want to be balanced. Lord, give us the balance of holiness. Your holiness. Your holiness. Uh, Let me say it one more time this way. Being more conservative than the Bible is not being more righteous. It's being less righteous. It's being a Pharisee. Don't go past the Bible. You're nothing. You disgrace the gospel of Christ when you go past the Bible. Do not bring reproach upon his name by acting like the Amish. In any way, the Lord gives us great liberty. We're free. We just don't use that freedom in any malicious way. Temperate Christians moderately enjoy food and drink. We just avoid drunkenness and gluttony. But we enjoy a good meal. And we enjoy a good meal with some decent quantity. But we just avoid gluttony and drunkenness.
The Bible says, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Peaceably. Let's be peacemakers wherever we go. Making peace always. Always. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Some of you would have read it last evening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you start wearing goofy clothes, what are you going to get called? Amish or Mennonites. So, un- so contrary to the Bible. Just go through the Bible and look at all the women that were beautiful. And notice that the Holy Spirit tells you that they were visible, visibly beautiful. And that anyone that got around them knew that they were beautiful because they weren't hiding in a gunny sack. Keep the balance of the Bible. Should you dress like Isaiah chapter 3 condemns? Absolutely not. Walking with a mincing step, trying to show off your body and emphasizing everything and every part of it that you can and making accessories in your clothing and your hair the most part of your presentation? No, no, no. That's the other extreme. But when it says that a woman ought to adorn herself with a meek and quiet spirit, it doesn't say that she can't adorn herself with a beautiful dress and a good hairdo. It's just the priority, and it's the Christian godly balance. And I don't like the word balance because most people use it as a, as a synonym for compromise or a euphemism for compromise. But there's balance in the Bible that will get us into trouble if we don't keep it. So we walk down. You say, but where is that road? It's this wide, so why are you worried about it? Can't you find it? It's this wide. I don't need to tell it to you, and that's why I don't. I am not going to create Crosby's rules for everything. I'm going to try to preach it and hope that you get the lesson. If you get in the ditch and stay in the ditch, I'm going to come after you. But the road is wide. That's our liberty. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Look what it says about your work here. I love 1 Thessalonians 4. First eight verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. How you ought to walk and please God. First eight verses, don't commit fornication. Next two verses, learn how to love other people. Next two verses, how do you work on the job? 11 and 12. And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. There's the command of Christian character. That, notice your work habits. That ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. God wants you to work hard carefully in your business or in your job so that you can give an honest picture to the world of your life. So that you can walk honestly toward them that are without. Because when men even smell a lazy man, they hate him. The sluggard shall beg in harvest and have nothing. Even a natural man knows that, that a lazy man should not eat. It's easy for government to legislate that, but you know that people understand better than that. They want to see you working hard. And you can, these Thessalonians had a problem with not working hard. Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that's where we have the words, you should be following our example. We preached all day and worked all night, and we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. That's where, this is the church it came from. And so here he's telling them to study to be quiet. Don't be going about from house to house and making a bunch of noise with your life. Just go about your daily job and do it well. Do your own business, not somebody else's business. Don't get into their business. Do your own business. Work with your hands. Throw yourself into your profession that you can walk honestly toward them that are without. Here's my point. In this chapter that's about sanctification and living a holy life, it mentions them that are without. 
and your attitude toward work. That you're not a rabble-rouser. You're not a yacker. You're not at the water fountain yacking with everybody. You're doing your work. You're being quiet about it. You're being consistent, persistent, and diligent. So that you have a good reputation before the world and you have anything you need. I love... Do you know how the, there's no book that writes as concisely as the Bible? It says that you can have stuff. Do you know where it says you can have stuff? It says that you may have lack of nothing. That's why you work hard. So that you can give a good impression to the world and so that you can have stuff. I love the Bible. Revenge is devilish. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17 says this. Romans 12, 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. No man. If somebody smites you on the cheek, give them another. If somebody takes your coat, give them your cloak. If somebody says, go a mile, take, take my stuff and haul it for a mile, take it too. If somebody parks their car in our driveway and blocks our parking lot, let them. We'll make a third driveway if they block two of them. Why does it bother you? Why is your heart full of revenge? Why don't you want to glorify our Father in heaven? I own the cattle in a thousand hills. Do you think I'm worried about this one and a half acres? Don't ever let that stuff bother you. Yes, it bothers me sometimes. But I know what the Bible tells me. And I don't want it to ever bother me. Are you such a new creature in Christ that all things are new? Behold. Is that what it says? Behold, all things are new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 I talked about tipping last Sunday. I hope you remember it. I hope anytime you pray in a restaurant that your children are well behaved, that you tip well, that you talk to the, the wait staff well, that you're thankful for the food, that you eat it with pleasure on your face, that you're holding your wife's hand or you're looking at her in such a way that somebody will say, that's a married couple that's in love. That your children are well behaved, and they've already said that, that when you get up and leave, there's not 50 items under the table. Have you seen some families leave a table? It's going to take somebody 15 minutes to clean that joint up. You know, the children have sat there and poured half the salt into the pepper and half the pepper into the salt. What, what does it look like under your table? Looks like a pig pen? Why don't you have your children down there on their hands and knees crawling around picking up the mess that they made? And so that when you leave the place, it's all policed and it looks good. That's a Christian family that ate there. Look at that family. They're conscientious about the carpet that they just trashed. You've all seen it. Brother Gerald was in a doctor's office this past week. I thought he was going to get violent last night just telling me about some of the children that were in there. A 300-pound guy holding a 20-pound baby, he said, a 2-year-old, 20-pounder, saying, wait till your mother comes out. I'm going to tell her that you've been a bad... He couldn't believe it. A 300-pound guy. He could squeeze the urine sample out of that little child. It's terrible. When we take our children someplace, they ought to be well-behaved, well-dressed. Good job. Spouse, do you know that the Solomon's, that Solomon's song is in our Bible? Are you that way to your husband? Does your marriage confirm all the wonderful things the Bible says about a Christian marriage? Does your marriage shut the mouths of this world that love their fornicating and their faggots? Do your children want to have a marriage like yours or the opposite? God forbid. It is only one thing that causes these problems. Selfishness. Selfishness. We don't care about your happiness. 
You are to worry about the happiness of your spouse. And that is the only happiness that matters. And if you would ever get that into your mind, you would become happy. It is a disgrace to the cause of Christ when there is an unhappy marriage. Your thoughts are absolutely and utterly and at all times totally worthless. Get out of your thoughts, start thanking, and love your spouse. Our children are at risk, and your children seem to matter more to me than they matter to you. I don't want to lose any children in this church. We have got to give them examples of marriages that they want. And this church should be so full of love and happiness and joy and peace, except when I'm preaching, that they all want to be here. But I have to preach like this. Some of you, nobody would want your marriage. Your marriage stinks. We can all tell. You can't hide it from us. It's shown on your faces. And your children have to live with that. No wonder you lose them. And you're going to lose more. And I can't stop it. And the Lord can't stop it. And the Lord won't stop it. Does your marriage commend Christianity? Does it condemn everything wicked about this world? Wife, does your submission and reverence and love and doting on your husband make a man, a boy, say to himself, I want a wife like my mother? Husband, do you treat your wife in such a loving way, talking to her, romancing her, that every girl, the girls that grow up in your family say, I want a husband like my father? Or are they saying to themselves, I can't wait till I get away from this tension-filled, unhappy, nitpicking, complaining, wicked marriage and find some happiness with somebody that will love me? If you're not a doting wife, you disgrace Christ's gospel and your children are going to reject you. And they should. God does not have a place in His religion for overbearing, picky, motor-mouth, high-maintenance, selfish wives. God doesn't have a place in His religion for husbands that are moody, negative, critical, withdraw, and don't love their wives. We are commanded to love our wives. We've got to do it. We want to do it. We want to be princes. Do you think a prince conducts himself like that? Where's a prince of a man? Show me a prince of a man. A prince would love his bride. A prince puts the slipper on the little foot and takes her to the ball. Visitors to our church should marvel at the loving, submissive wives and the loving, leading husbands. The only thing we ever want to be condemned for is in a matter of our religion. We want to be like Daniel. That when they vet us and they search us, they can't find anything except our religion. Shouldn't Christians be the happiest people alive? Should it be be visible? Am I missing something? Is the Lord missing something? Should Christians be the kindest people alive? Because... God has been sort of, a little bit, once in a while, kind to them. How about the most diligent? The most gracious? Because we're the inventors and the only ones that really know the word grace. We didn't invent the word, but God invented it for us. We're the only ones that really know what grace is. So we should be the most gracious of all people. If I'm not being gracious with you right now, it's not the time for graciousness. I'm going to stand before God and give an account whether I told you people the truth or not. And you're going to give an account for your wicked rebellion against what I've preached. But you're going to know that a prophet was among you. And I am nothing but sinful scum saved by grace with a big mouth. And I hope a little heart that loves the things of God and His Word 
And where I haven't been a proper example to you, I'll, re- I'll repent again this Sunday. I am sorry for not having been a better example in all things of good works and a pattern for all of you in righteousness. And by God's grace, I will be, I want to be a prince of the Lord Jesus Christ in this earth as an example for you, for my children, and for the whole church. But I know what the Bible says. It tells me that yesterday is worth, not worth worrying about. All I can do is confess yesterday and forget about it. He doesn't hold me responsible for tomorrow because sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. All that he tells me about is today. And for the damage I've done, I'm going to trust God's grace to recover any damage I've done by the zeal that I'm going to show toward what is right. And that's what all of you ought to be saying. Our children, why would they want to stay? Why would they want to stay? Some of you sad, sack, unhappy, complaining, whining babies, you're so selfish. Get out of yourself and do something for somebody. The Bible tells you to do that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Why do you want to receive all the time? Love is the greatest grace, and let's show it. Let's have so much love in this church that people keep wanting to come and stay with us until we have to have full-time hospitality managers. You know, whatever it takes. Let's be a loving church. By all this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have one to another. You know, we show a lot of love to our visitors, but let it be second to the love we show to each other. You know, the ones you live with, it's harder to love all the time. I know that. Listen, my, my children all know that. Why do I love your children more than I love my children is what they say to themselves. But you all know that. You know, you're all more princely to my wife than you are to yours or than I am to her. Isn't that terrible? I had a brother over my backyard this week pruning my wife's bushes while I'm sitting inside. Oh. <laughs> it's the love we show one to another. Love is the greatest grace of a Christian. Love. And think of all the different objects of our love that the Bible gives us. The love of brethren, the love of neighbor, the love of spouse, the love of children, the love of parents, the love of God, the love of enemies. It's all in the Bible. Love is a great thing. And if you don't have that, because you're selfish, that's the only thing that stops love is selfishness. You know, pride, what is pride? It's just selfishness. You think too highly of yourself. I mean, just boil it down. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. Love is the greatest grace, and it's what we should show the whole world. What's your credit score, brethren? You got a good credit score? You got the credit score of a Christian? Whenever you look at the credit score table, there's debtors, never get a loan, almost debtors, barely get a loan, decent credit, and Christian credit. You know, and some pagans have Christian credit. And that's why the Bible has statements like this, you're worse than an infidel. Because some pagans have Christian credit. You should have great credit. Is your credit great? If it's not great, get it great. Why isn't it great? You haven't been living like a Christian. How do you pay your bills? Pay them like a Christian. What do people think who know it, who know your credit score and know that you're a Christian? It's a single number summary of how you've managed your loans and payments in life. Excess debt's a terrible thing. It proves impatience, impulsiveness, and irresponsibility. Get rid of debt. You don't need it. You say, but I want stuff. Then go to work. Why do you have to borrow to get stuff? First Thessalonians 4 didn't say borrow to get stuff. It said to work hard for stuff. Your children say so much about our religion. And I thank God that people are able to come into our assembly. And these grown adults can't sit halfway through one of our services. And they look around and see all these children sitting here through all of two. 
Praise the Lord for that. And I commend all of you that are able to do that with your children. It's a great example. Are your children loving to each other? Serving? Do they want to help? Do they want to jump in and serve the church? Are they interested in others or are they interested in their little worthless lives? And when I say that, do you understand that each of your life is important in a certain way? But when it comes to the two commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, your life becomes very unimportant. You are to think more highly of others and their things than you and your things. Are are you teaching that to your children? Are you teaching graciousness to your children? Are you teaching your children to serve others? That when they come to church, it's not a date. When they come to church, it's not a family reunion. When they come to church, it's not time to go meet your friends. When they come to church, it's to get around and mingle with the whole family. I don't care if you have a little boyfriend or a little girlfriend here. This is not a place for dating. This is a place for finding other saints and provoking them to love and to good works. That's what the Bible says. Are your children well-behaved? Are they quiet, obedient, reverent, kind? Do they share? Do they serve? It only takes a few minutes for men to know what kind of a parent you are by your children. Our families should be united, happy, productive, and serving. That's what God wants us to do with our families. Good women are rare. A great woman. The Bible says, who can find a virtuous woman? So if we were to have five or ten in this church, what would it say about our church? It would say, wow! Look at the church of Greenville. They have a whole bunch of virtuous women. You should go in that place. You should see the way the women treat their husbands in that church. It's almost like the Bible. That's the idea. Thank you. Let's do that. You know, the Bible says, let your speech be always with grace. I'm jumping, I know. Let your speech be always with grace that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Every man should be answered graciously. Even the clerk that was slow, that had the pump, that spit your 20 back out, or my 20 back out. Let your speech be always with grace. Let it be consistent. Brethren, the crowd is anybody that you meet. The crowd is everybody at your home. You parents are having such an effect on your children by your example. The crowd. We had the concept. We had the commandment. We had the character that affects our whole lives. But who's the crowd? Who are those watching? Everyone at home. Everyone in this church. When we come to church and the lives we live, we can provoke one another to godliness. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 about their giving to the Corinthians, he brought up the church at Philippi and he was, he was giving them as a good example. Then he said, I have boasted about you Corinthians to them in Macedonia and your zeal hath provoked very many. Aren't those great words? Your zeal hath provoked very many. There are people wanting to come and visit our church because our zeal hath provoked a few. Is that true? Thank you. Isn't that a wonderful statement? I love 2 Corinthians 9 too. Your zeal hath provoked very many. That's the crowd. It's everybody in here. It's everyone out there we're going to meet. It's everyone you're going to work with tomorrow. It's every customer that may come in the door. It's every relative. It's your in-laws that you're going to go spend a few days with. We have all these opportunities to be a living epistle of Jesus Christ, a son of God, a prince in the earth, gracious speech, wonderful conduct, generosity, forgiveness, warmth, the love of God toward all, even our enemies. 
The crowd. Where is the crowd? Like, like the good Samaritan, the wounded Jew that God put in his path. We do not know who we're going to meet this day. You young people, you are going to meet some people you've never met before. Show them the love of Christ. Show them the love of God. Show them the gentleness, graciousness, and interest, and friendliness in saying something nice to them. In asking them if there's anything you can do for them. In listening to them tell you some stories of their childhood. How many of you remember Mrs. King? Remember Mrs. King? She's a special woman at the Fountainside Retirement Home. I love to get her talking. Well, you didn't have to work hard to get her talking. But she liked, she liked to talk. And you know what? She's 95 years old. Let her talk a little bit. And pretty soon she's thanking God for her husband. And he'd been dead for over 40 years. I used to get so excited with that woman. So did some of you. So don't think I'm weird. She was a, ple- she was a pleasure to be around. You young people, by gracious speech and friendliness, and interest. And did that really happen in your life? That's really interesting. I'm glad that you have three children. They come and visit you every month, whatever they say to you. If you sad sacks get in there and mess up their lives, the Lord's going to hold you accountable for that. Say something nice to them. It's the crowd that the Lord gives us. Parent, your children are your audience. Spouse, your spouse is your audience. There's everywhere we look, and we, you know, we're not going to get out of this room without meeting our audience. The consequences, a bad consequence, causes people to blaspheme the God of heaven. Do you know how important it is to God? Do you know how important it is to God when we give an opportunity for the enemies of God to blaspheme him? He killed David and Bathsheba's love child. That's how important. Because. Thou hast given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child shall die. Now, the same terminology is used in Titus chapter 2 for aged and young women. Same terminology. That's how important it is to him. He is the God of heaven and he loves his reputation. He loves his name. There is no God like him. And he wants us to live in such a way that we bring honor and glory to him. And when we live in such a way after the kindness he's shown us that caused his enemies to have a reason to reproach him, he is angered by that. And so he will mess in your families, he will mess in your mind, and he will take your children. He took David and Bathsheba's. David humbled himself, and you know he did. And Bathsheba must have humbled herself. And I hope that you'll remember, their next child was Solomon. And the Lord loved him. There's so many more verses. The Bible says this in so many ways. Your example is so important not to give encouragement to hypocrisy. Peter came 200 miles north of Jerusalem, 300 miles, all the way up to Antioch of Syria. And when he came up there, it was a Gentile church where Paul and Barnabas were teachers, among several others. When he was up there, he ate with the Gentiles anything they ate. He was having pepperoni pizza and Italian sausage, salami. Then, when brethren came up out of Jerusalem, Jews, as soon as Peter realized that they were in town, 
he would no longer eat with the Gentiles, but would only eat with the Jews. And Paul had to rebuke him to his face because, the Bible tells us, his dissimulation, his hypocrisy had caused many to waver in their faith and even Barnabas was carried away with his dissimulation. False teachers in 2 Timothy chapter 2 overthrew the faith of some. Your life can overthrow the faith of your children. Your life can overthrow the faith of other church members. May God help us not to do that. Peter was a bad example, and Paul rebuked him to his face for it. Each, each thought, each word, each deed reflects strongly on our Father in heaven, His religion, the Bible, and our church. That's weighty. Fear your influence. Appreciate your influence. Guard your influence and use it carefully, as we've learned in the last four sermons. What fruit do you have in your souls? What, do you, what fruit do you have in souls? How many people have been converted to the truth of the gospel by your life? There should be some. If not, why? How many? Do not measure your life by any vague notion that comforts you. Measure your life by souls converted by your life. You think you have a personality handicap and this is hard for you? Really? Get over it. There's no allowance in the Bible for personality handicaps. You can change. A personality handicap is merely bad habits that your parents allowed to form in you that you didn't correct either. The Bible tells you to correct them. You can change. We can all change. What should you do? Examine yourself in the light of God's Word. Confess your past failures, for God forgives. Change what you need to change today. Let God undo your past mistakes. He's better at it than you. Let God bless your new efforts. Let your light so shine before men, that they may, be, that they may behold your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We're strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Let's let our lifestyle shout the beauty and the purity and the truth of God's gospel and of his glorious name. Let us live up to the name Christian in every way. Let those that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. May the Lord bless us to have much fruit in our families, in our church, in our businesses, in our acquaintances, in those that come and visit us. May we provoke love and good works in their souls. May we lift them up and may our zeal provoke very many like the Corinthian zeal provoked very many. Let the word of the Lord sound out from us like it did the church at Thessalonica. That wasn't evangelism. That was their reputation spreading throughout the Roman world of the change in their lives when they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Let that be true of us. The way you look at your wife, talk to your wife, treat your wife, sit with your wife in the car on the way home, what you say about other church members on the way home, the person that's driving slow in front of you, your children are listening and watching. If you stop and talk to a clerk, every person that we meet, let's present Jesus Christ to them. Let's be living epistles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may Jesus Christ be glorified. He is our goal. Amen.